Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop, and this episode of the podcast is an extremely timely one because I sat down to record it the week of the Hard Rock 100, and in fact, it is going to come out the very day before the Hard Rock 100 starts. Hopefully, if I'm lucky enough and I'm tough enough, I will get my third finish around that course. But the real reason that this podcast is so timely is because we are starting to see a lot of the higher altitude ultras take place later in the summer. And there is no bigger thing that strikes the fear into athletes' hearts as these high altitude ultras. And one of the reasons for that fear is because your nutrition program becomes that much more problematic at high altitude compared to moderate or at low altitudes. And so to demystify this and to lay out a roadmap for how you can handle your high altitude ultras, I brought on one of my favorite nutrition experts, Meredith Terranova to the podcast today to start to set the roadmap for what you can do with your nutrition plan for these high altitude ultras. And make no mistake, there are some things that you can do both in how you execute the race and also in how you train. I love the way Meredith presents a lot of her concepts in a very factual and pragmatic way so that athletes can immediately take hold of them and implement them into their plans. And I think you will find the same throughout the course of this podcast. So with that as a backdrop, I'm gonna get right out of the way. Here's my podcast with Meredith Terranova, all about how to adapt your nutrition program into a high altitude situation. You ready? Uh, yes, on to the actual on topic. To, on, on to the actual topic. We're going to have like a, you're going to take up my memory card. I've still got 10 hours left. You're not going to make this 10 hours, are you? I don't have time for 10 hours. I got to call it one. Oh, okay, good, good, good. All right, we'll keep, we'll keep it under 10 hours then. Um, so we're going to talk about nutrition at high altitude. And before we get into it too much, since we were just bantering about hard rock off air, I think it's uh, worth it to start out with all of the caveats because I think this is going to come out like literally 24 hours before hard rock actually starts. So inevitably there's going to be some person, you know, sitting in their Airbnb or sitting in their tent, like listening to the coop cast 24 hours before that race and go, Oh shit. Like I haven't done any of these things that they just talked about. And they're going to completely upend their, up, upend their nutrition program. And so I kind of want to start out with a few tried and true caveats that you're used to. And I'm also used to as well when we have people ask about like last minute considerations. So it is the summer for altitude races. We've got hard rock coming up. We've got high lonesome coming up also in Colorado, Leadville coming up also in Colorado, but then also a number of other European races that are held at, you know, 6,000 to 10,000 feet or something like that. And, uh, I think just with all the smattering of those, uh, higher altitude races in the late summer, it makes it a really good topic of conversation, although a late one. So let's start out with the, with the caveats if people are listening to this within close proximity of their race. (laughs) I'm going to start out with the first one. You could throw in the next one. 
don't dramatically change anything just based off of what we're going to say. If you have a short amount of time between when you listen to this and when the race and when the race is, let me just put it that way, because sometimes the change is more problematic than what you are actually doing. And you don't know that until you have enough time to kind of like trial it out. So that's my caveat from, from, from the very beginning for those people that are listening to this within a week of their race. Meredith, do you want to tack onto that before we get into it? Um, I'm going to put it like put it in your back pocket as a plan Z. If there's some, <laughs> if there's a nugget you heard here that was like, that's really interesting. Okay. If your tried and true plan, the plan that you have like laid out, your crew has, we're ready to go. Like just, it's in your back pocket. If it's, there's a nugget. And so if something, if everything goes totally sideways, you want to remember one thing just have it like, it's it there. It's in your back pocket. You can be like, oh, there was this nugget I heard yesterday. Let me pull that out. <laughs> well, so I'll put that there. Like, I'll let this be a plan Z of like, maybe something's on the table that we're talking about at an aid station and everything else has gone to crap. Let's try it out now. Okay, <laughs> if well, it's like this and I'm taking my bib off, like give this a try, okay. right? Like if we're at the end here and things have just gone so sideways and this is totally new information, yes. But if you don't have time to train with anything we've talked about, like, again, it should be thrown to a plan Z. It should not even be in your A, B, or C plan at this point if you cannot go out and train with it. And I always hold to that. The best thing you can do is trust your plan, whatever it is, even if it's totally opposite of what we're talking about, Trust the plan, you know, take the girl that you, tr- that, you know, you asked to prom and take her all the way there and take her home. Like that's where we're going. All right. That's a, that's a brilliant way to put it. I'd say if you're on plan, <laughs> if you're on plan Z, then you might as well just try anything. You just, you're, right. you're throwing shit at the wall point anyway. So anything totally. that we say, great. <laughs> right. If it's like, I'm about to pull my number off and this might get you to the next aid station and then you can problem solve further. Like, great. But if you haven't trained with it, this is probably not our plan for the day. (laughs) Okay. So there are the caveats. Don't change anything at the very last minute unless you're in dire straits and hopefully you never get to (laughs) dire straits. But here's the crux of it, right? We're going to talk about why, why nutrition is so uh, confounding at altitude and some ways to try to potentially use nutrition strategies to, uh, to be more successful at altitude. But the, the, one of the confounding factors here is that the altitude stimulus or the altitude stress in a lot of cases is very novel for athletes, meaning they live at sea level or they might even live at a moderate altitude They don't have the opportunity to come, you know, out on the race course and experience what it's actually like. And then they get out on the race and it's a whole different kind of kettle of fish. And because of that, uh, because of that novelty, it, it, it just adds a little bit of a layer of complexity because you get one shot at it. You know, you get one shot and you get one shot only. And then if your strategies work, they work. And if not, you're rolling to B, C, D and Z plan as we were, as we were mentioning earlier. And so to get a better grasp on how these things can potentially work and what's different at altitude, I think we've got to go back to the fundamentals. 
fundamentals drive everything in physiology. And if you have a strong understanding of some of these fundamental principles about how our body is stressed, you can, even if you don't have the opportunity to practice before training or, or get that exact stimulus or get that exact stress in training, you can at least theorize about what may happen and come up with interventions in advance that can help combat that. So we're going to start out with the fundamentals first. So I'm going to toss it over to you, Meredith. So why, from a nutrition perspective, physiologically and fundamentally is going to altitude, why does that make your nutrition program so much more problematic than your normal sea level, 50 degree, I'm going to go run in my normal environment type of uh, training activity? And I actually like went back to the research because it's easy for me to say, I have this wealth of knowledge. Now I live at high altitude. I watch these races at high altitude unfold. I can even like go there. I actually went back to the science and I will send you some of the research links that I was looking at to define where our bodies, kind of the base of what our body's thinking and how we even think about this. So we defined high altitude at 8,000 feet. And then they defined very high altitude at 11.5. And so I just want to kind of start with there because when we're talking about these high altitude races, most of them are starting at 10. So we're in that window (laughs) of when we're talking about these higher altitude races, there are considerations for the five, 6,000 feet races, but I think our focus is here's this bundle of races happening at eight plus. Um, And so that's when we have the real body considerations because it's not just like flying into Denver breathing a little heavy, drink a little extra, you're good to go. You know, our bodies utilize carbs and fluid differently at high altitude. Um, You know, and we use carbs, we use carbs faster. Um, Adrenaline, noradrenaline and cortisol are all increased at altitude which again, these are considerations for our calorie and carb consideration. And then we just have to say, okay, well, our hydration's different. Our sweat rate's different. Our heart rate's different. Our urine output is different at high altitude. And so that all affects our hydration. I separate the two because especially at altitude, hydration and electrolyte consideration and carb consideration are two different things. Um, Both equally important, but if you get dehydrated at a high altitude, as with a hot race, game changer, game over, right? If you're low on carbs, like you're gonna get grumpy, your legs are gonna get tired, you're gonna feel weak, but it's not game over, right? Like you can replenish the carbs. And so, I think separating out the two at altitude are so essential. Um, And that's just kind of the base. So that's the, and then we haven't even talked about like a hot day at altitude. You know, I just watched Silver Rush 50 happen. Not a cloud in the sky. It was hot. That's a whole different ball game, you know, because people were sweating, sweating at 10,000 feet at hour two into the 50 miler. 
And then, you know, if you, if you're running a little harder than you should be from a physiological standpoint, then again, we have game changer from a nutrition standpoint. Well, and here's, it's one thing to say that, but it's another thing to understand the magnitude of that, of that change. And it's, it's hard to pinpoint some of that unless you actually do a lot of sweat testing or you actually know how many calories you're burning at various exercise uh, intensities. But the way that I describe it to people is, is when we have athletes that just come into Denver, which is 5,200 feet or Colorado Springs, which is 6,300 feet, we advise that they drink one to one and a half liters extra fluid just at rest. So somebody's usually drinking three or four liters of fluid a day, right? That's a pretty common intake yeah. in, intake for athletes. We're having them increase that by a third or 25% just at rest, just during their travel day. Yep. And normally... And not just in water. Water plus electrolytes. Asterisk to that. Yeah. Water plus yeah. electrolytes. Yeah. Don't just waterlog yourself when you get to altitude. Yeah. And, and I guess my, my, my real point with that is, is even at rest, the magnitude of the change in hydration that you actually need, water plus electrolytes, is a huge factor. And no, most people don't expect it to actually be that big. They think it's like 10%. So obviously, we're doubling that, right? Doubling that 10% thing that people mm -hmm. have in their head. And then we start to move into exercise, right? And even if you just carry that forward to exercise, okay, for every unit of time, you need 25 to 33% more hydration in quotes, water plus yes. electrolyte, whatever your ratio is, that starts to paint a completely different picture to athletes when they actually come to our camps or they come up to these, you know, what we call moderate or, or, or even high altitudes. And so my point with that whole dialogue on the hydration side is, is the magnitude of change and the increases that you need across that, that one, just that one variable hydration is significant. And it's something that we kind of, we don't, we don't really, I don't think we recognize it as much because we think of hydration as predominantly a heat, a heat thing, right? Heat, heat and then intensity is what affects it the most. But when we have these big altitude shifts, um, that ends up being just as big, if not a bigger player, uh, than the heat well, side of things. And then the challenge always becomes most people have spent this because these are all summer races. Most people have spent their summer in heat they come to these higher altitudes the morning of those races feel cool yeah right you know because it's cold how many people when they go back and figure out why their plan unraveled think about the first 2 hours of their race and that they did not touch their hydration so we've got two factors now right the magnitude of the hydration change is big mm -hmm. that trips people up and then the feeling throws them off as well. It tends to be cooler. And then if you go, you know, you go up in altitude, you're, you're typically going down in temperature. That tends yep. to throw, throw people off as well. What can we say about the fuel utilization side of things? I've, I've had a number of people on my podcast that are high altitude experts that have looked at this and they've got a famous physiology lab at the top of Pikes Peak where they, you know, where they put people on uh, uh, mainly uh, cycling ergometers and do graded exercise tests and study their fuel utilization and things like that. How does the fuel utilization curve, if we want to think about it like that, in terms of percentage of carbohydrate and fats that they're burning at any particular intensity, how does that actually 
mess people up and or change at altitude? Because those are kind of like two different things. So we utilize more carbs at altitude. So factor one is you need carbs at altitude. You need 60% carbs at altitude. So sorry, low carb users, you actually need more carbs. Now the challenge is at altitude, people might lose their appetite or our body's ability. If your heart rate is up while you're exercising to take in the carbs is harder. And so I like to go on the nibble standpoint that you need to be in this constant drip of small amounts of carbs from basically minute one that you start exercising. You know, you could even be sitting. Let's just say you're sitting. You need to be taking in carbs, even if your appetite is diminished at altitude, knowing that you're burning more carbs, just living and being at altitude. That being said, though, when we're thinking about exercise, so we're thinking about you came up, you're about to do this important race. The challenge is people start the race. And again, it's cold. They feel great. They don't take anything in and then they panic. And then they take all these carbs in or all this fuel in and your gut can't handle it. And because again, your heart rate is elevated, your body's working harder. And so people get into this really horrible cycle, especially during races where we're working harder and then we're overfueling in these segments. And so it's like same amount of fuel, if not needing even a little bit more, but you have to spread it out differently. So it's like a totally different ball game. So some of these gels that are 250, 350 calories, it's like no go, yeah. no man. Yeah. That should take you 90 minutes to get down, especially also if there's fat and there's protein in there because our body's utilizing fat and protein differently at high altitude. The carbohydrate shift is a little bit of a double-edged sword, right? Because we know at altitude as a percentage of the whole you're going to be burning and therefore need to replace more carbohydrates. Yes. Yet it's harder to ingest more carbohydrates because typically your exercise intensity is higher and that's going to that's going to limit the carbohydrate absorption. It's just how hard you're, you know, how hard you're exercising and it's going to move blood away from the stomach and into the into the working muscles. And then you add on then you add on to the fact that the penalties that you pay for some of the mistakes that you make, like you just mentioned, taking big carbohydrate dumps like kind of all at once or big food dumps all at once are magnified because of all of those factors. Because yes. because of the altitude and because the intensity is a little bit higher, the things that you could get away with at sea level, taking in 60 grams of carbohydrate at once or your 250 calorie gel kind of all in one shot, you can't get away with those at altitude because the physiological floor that you're exercising at is so much higher, right? You can't come, you can't bring that intensity back down in the same fashion that you could at sea level and, and therefore free up your body's resources. And so when I look of, look at all of that, I, the, the kind of the issue that, that, that starts to come to play is this one of compounding variables that are worth more than the sum of their parts. It's the intensity variable, it's the altitude variable, it's the dehydration variable, which which that yes. confounds the carbohydrate absorption as well. 
you get all of those kind of going at the same time and they become more problematic than any single one of those would when you're at sea level or exercising at a different intensity. 100%. But I also think one of the biggest, you know, aside from this, it's cool. I don't need the first two hours. Also a lot of these race scenarios, people feel really good until they don't. Right. <laughs> and they go out too fast until they can't. And so they say, I feel really good. My heart rate wasn't through the roof, whatever, but it's like at 10,000 feet or at 8,000 feet, even if your heart rate isn't through the roof, you are working harder. And so then the processing of your fuel, you know, I was talking to a number of people after the 50 and they're like, oh, I felt great at the beginning, but yet I couldn't eat after mile 19. And it's like, okay, but how fast were you running in those first 19 miles? Well, this is why you couldn't eat after mile 19. Your body was working too hard. You were taking in your fuel, but your gut was shut down because your body was working too hard and you weren't able to process fuel after mile 19. And then by the time you're walking and you've slowed down to get your heart rate down, again, to your point, the other three things have already gone, you know, have already fallen away your eating's fallen away. You're probably dehydrated. You probably didn't drink. You probably weren't taking care of your electrolytes. You've unfolded everything. So I think phase one to altitude respect is going slow. Um, This is coming from a nutrition expert, by the way, like the nutrition expert is focused on effort first and foremost, as as aside from some sort of magic nutrition intervention. Absolutely. Because how do we process our nutrition the best? especially when you're thinking about a long race for a 5k sure have your heart beating through your mouth like great you don't have to take in any fuel for a 5k but if you think you're going to go out for nine plus hours and you know you need to fuel for nine plus hours at high altitude well the key to success is starting out slow enough that you can process all your fuel And so I think, yes. So I think if we're having, what's your number one thing? And so Mr. Hard Rock person who's listening, start out slow enough so you can take in all your fuel that you've planned to take in for the race. Well, once again, so here, here, here becomes the ultimate, how do you manipulate this? Because you know, when you go to altitude, you're going to have to change a number of different things, but at least something, at least one thing. Right. And that's the, that's, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but that's the advice that I always give to athletes is first off, you have to modulate your effort and then we can look at modulating somehow the nutrition plan. But it's kind of in that order because the effort acts as like the key in the doorway, right? To, for everything else to actually work, you can manipulate your nutrition like seven ways from Sunday. But if you're still pinned the entire time, that's only a you know, that's going to be a, that's going to be a very short runway that you, that that you kind of, that you end up with. And so many people get confused by their effort at altitude because it's so, especially when they're coming up from sea level, because it is so much different. And you mentioned these parameters of, of your heart rate is a lot different, but also in my experience, the pace is so much different and not just a little bit. It's almost like the hydration. It's so dramatically different 
that the athletes that are used to training at sea level, they know all their paces, they can go run around. You know, I, tra- I lived in, you know, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I ran around White Rock Lake the entire time. And I always knew I could run seven minute and 30, seven minute and 30 second miles around that lake the entire time. I go up to Leadville at 10,000 feet and I can run nine and a half minute miles, maybe 10 minute miles if I'm, you know, really being honest with myself. That dramatic of a change, it, it messes with people's heads when they go out and they see it because it's not that, you know, on a flat sections, flat sections, a flat section. And so the ability to modulate things based off of effort and not be too pretentious about your pace. And you got to kind of throw heart rate out the window when the changes are that dramatic, I think is absolutely critical. And for these types of races, you can't go too easy at the beginning. It's just, it's almost, yes. unless you're trying to, unless you know, you're going to scrape the cutoffs and then you've got to take some risks. That's a different kind of, I think that's a different uh, intensity or effort proposition with those athletes. But if you're in reasonable enough shape. But even for them, their hydration and electrolytes are key. And then getting in really small amounts of carbs regularly, knowing that they're taking that risk. So, you know, not to throw a friend under the bus, but he had a pierogi plan for the 50 miler. And quite frankly, he's going to be chasing the cutoffs at the beginning part of Leadville probably shouldn't be eating his pierogies while he's running a little outside of himself early. Um, you know, and, and he lives in Leadville. So this is somebody who is acclimated to the altitude. It still matters. So the pierogies that they're going to have at Kroger's canteen that I'm going to encounter in a week's time, not even a week's time, four or five days time. But you're pretty deep into the race then you're pretty deep. 40, 40 balls of the race. Yeah. I'll, I'll right. nibble them but on the way down. In. Right. But you're in, <laughs> take a baggie, put them in, you know, don't eat 10 of them. I mean, that's the thing is your whole nutrition plan is not pierogies for, you know, from Kroger's canteen. <laughs> true. Um, true. So it's, it's being smart about if you're taking that risk of needing to be a little quicker early of then, you know, dipping more into that anaerobic nutrition plan of, Mm -hmm. Hey, my gut's going to be shut down. I know this because my heart rate might be a little higher. So let me lean more into sips of gels, some chews, you know, more of that higher carb, easier to process stuff. than let me have sandwiches. Okay. Let me, let me try to encapsulate this a little bit, Meredith. So Phase one is controlling your effort or phase one, phase one, let's, 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 uh, encapsulate the problem a little bit, how to have a good nutrition plan at altitude, right? So phase one is to make sure your effort is at the pro- appropriate level for you. And right. If and, you're, it, and we're not talking about mom 90, if it mom 90, you yeah. want to be inappropriate with your effort, by go all for means, it. go, for, go it. for it. Absolutely. <laughs> phase two would be focused on the hydration. Absolutely. Because it's so dramatic and it's one of those keys, as I mentioned earlier, that opens the door for the rest of your nutrition plan to work. Would phase three be taking whatever you would normally do, let's just say it's 250 calories an hour, and just dividing it into smaller chunks throughout the course of the race? Okay. 100%. It should be an... You know, I, I steal this from Ian Charman. I paced him at Leadville one year. We called it the nibble. You know, he would go into aid stations and on the course, nibbles. He eats nibbles of food. He never was having huge chunks of food at once. And so 
I've stolen it ever since, taking little nibbles of food. And it should be consistent, you know. Again, you have to change your brain when you're training to get into that nibble routine. Because if in training, you only eat every 90 minutes or every hour when you stop at your car, when you stop at a gas station, then that's the routine your body's on. That's the routine your brain's on. Even if you take in less fuel during training, which a lot of people do, you can still adopt the same habits of nibbles. You can still get your body in the routine. So if you're not at altitude, you can still get yourself into that routine. You know, I have one client training in Texas. She went to a gas station and she drank a huge Coke. She ate all the food. I'm so proud of her. I would have been even more proud if she had put stuff in a baggie and taken it with her and kind of kept working with it, you know, as she was continuing going. Because that's where you want to be in practice. Because especially if in these high altitude races, you're also now using poles, which you weren't training with before. If you're not in the routine of I eat this frequently, I do this, my body's, I need to do this. The minute you put poles in your hand, game over. You're not going to go into your pack and grab your food. You're never going to do any of that. It's all factored into there. Well, and the polls compound the calorie dump, right? Because most people will like look for an opportune time to get out of their poles because they're using yes. straps or the leaky, you know, yes. shark gloves or whatever they're called. And that takes time. You got to kind of like think about when am I going to, you know, get out of my poles and reach into my pack. What most people want to do is grab their 200 calorie dump and then just take it all in at once and then get back in their poles. And that reinforces yes. this negative cycle of too many calories kind of all at once. It's this kind of like when I, when I hear the nibble, nibble, sip, sip philosophy, which I heard first heard from Stacy Sims, who's been on this, on this podcast as well. Um, I always think that chews the chewable products, regardless of what brand you have an affiliation Mm -hmm. with, that's the most pragmatic piece of nutrition or the most conducive piece of nutrition to that type of program, because you can take in like a, literally a 15 or a 20 calorie chunk at once, yeah. and then you can take in another one, or you can take in all six of them and just hold six in your mouth and then eat one. And then 10 minutes later, suck down another one. And then 10 minutes later, like suck down another one. Like I've, I've done that. And I've seen athletes do that as well. It, outside of just taking like little small bits of food is there any, what can, like, what direction can you, have you actually given athletes to try to accomplish that and try to avoid the bigger dumps? Well, and I always talk about like pre-bagging stuff into little pieces, like don't just have a bar, cut the bar yeah. into six pieces. You know, you can also, if you're really good about the baggie and you have it in front, you can have the baggie and your poles together, right? Like you can pull that out. And then how annoying is it that it's in your hand and as you consume the food, the baggie gets smaller. Mm. So you can have it in your hand. You know, uh, even the goose or the chews can squish up in your hand in a baggie or candy or whatever that thing is as you're holding the poles. So it can just literally be part of the program for you. Um it just is, again, making it part of your routine. If it's something you've not trained to do, you're never going to do it. It's also being very conscientious of where you have things 
and how you have like your bottles. If your hose, if you have all your nutrition in a bladder and the hose is like behind you and wrapped around, you are never going to drink it. If you have the two little bottle things close to your face, guess what? You're going to drink them. You know, you're going to turn your head and you're going to drink. And so it's even the logistic of how you have your bottles packed is so important, right? It just, it comes down to just making things so easy and already, you know, taking the two hours before a race to cut up things in the proper portion that they need to be in. So you can literally just grab and go, you know, even if that means that you have baggies with like two little pieces in it and you have four different baggies, but you grab them from those baggies and being very well equipped with all of that. Do you have a guy post on like the morsels that they're trying to condense things down to, if you want to put it in like a calorie perspective? I really like them to be in like the 20 to 30 calorie bite. You know, I, I think that's easy to get down. I also think even if you've been feeling unwell or things are getting tough, putting in 20 calories of something that can like literally melt in your mouth to the point of some of the chews, like you can suck them down to really where they kind of just melt in your mouth, you know? Um, there are some bars that are like so nice that they just kind of like you could sit it in your mouth for a little bit. Pick something, you know, a bag of pretzels, probably not a great situation because they're dry and they require a lot of work to go with them. Right. It's like you're going to chew a pretzel One, It's not a lot of calories chew a pretzel. Then you've got to be conscientious about drinking. So you're not choking, you know, if you start choking, your heart rate goes up. It's like all those things happen. So you have to think through your foods. You may love pretzels. This just may not be the scenario for them. Okay. So we've got all, we've got this like whole host of things. I'm like, I'm, I'm glad that we got this down into three steps, right? Phase one is the <laughs> yeah. effort. Phase two is hydration. And phase three is little chunks, neat little three step, you know, three point plan there. Yeah. Um, so that's what that that is if you're going into Hard Rock this weekend or tomorrow if you're listening to this on Thursday when it's released or High Lonesome the week after that or whatever altitude you've yeah. got a plan and you need to adapt it which I think is I, I think that's practical for most people because they're kind of deep into the summer there's limited times to practice these nutrition things and stuff like that but races like Leadville or Wasatch are far enough in the future end of August early September that now we have the time, the athletes, the athletes doing those races, they have the time to actually prepare for it in advance. Whoa, what a novel concept. (laughs) So, so let's, if you haven't already been amazing, if you're already like ahead of the curve and already been practicing. Exactly. Exactly. Kudos to you. Most people are trying to cram (laughs) it in at the last minute, but let's put ourselves in the shoes of consulting with those athletes that have four to six weeks to get prepared for these events and we know that the altitude stress is going to be novel for them it's going to be kind of a different thing for them what things should they be focusing on in training so that they are better equipped once they get out to altitude and it's not such a shock to their system i think one is just truly being prepared with your plan and a plan that's right for altitude. So I have one client who's actually doing Leadville and he had decided about a month ago that he loved savory foods. 
peanut butter wraps, bars, like really rice balls, all the things, but solely savory foods. So he threw out like the whole idea of having gels and chews. And I finally said to him, and he did a 50 miler and he, surprise, surprise, got totally sick of the peanut butter. Everything got super dry. (laughs) And I said, well, let's magnify this. Let's think forward to what this feels like at altitude. Realistically, at altitude, when your heart rate is up and kind of to what we've been talking about, simpler nutrition, easier to absorb carbohydrates, less fat, is going to be easier to practice with. Even if your brain says, I love savory foods, you can sprinkle in the savory foods, but not have heavy foods. You know, when we all think of kind of putting in savory foods into our nutrition plan, they end up being a little bit fat heavy. They end up being oftentimes peanut butter bread based. And to my earlier point, protein and fat are utilized differently at high altitude. We need carbs. You know, first, we need a little bit of fat. We need a little bit of protein. But if you're eating two tablespoons of peanut butter every 90 minutes, you can't utilize, like you're not utilizing that and it will sit like a brick in your stomach. And then if you miss the step on hydration, the lucky thing is most people who are coming from lower altitudes are in the heat of summer and are in this incredible heat wave. And so practicing their hydration and electrolytes is actually totally not an issue, right? Like I think they have a higher level intake pretty nailed down when they come to altitude. It's just saying, hey, that all that good stuff you were doing in the heat, when it's 30 degrees, 40 degrees cooler, you still need to be doing it just like it were a hot day. Because also, quite frankly, a 60 degree day at 10,000 feet is the equivalent to being in an 85 degree day at no altitude. From a hydration perspective. From a hydration perspective. And if that unwinds while you're racing, then the carbs, you know, like the nausea, the like pick your thing, everything starts unwinding together. But for the athletes that, that train at sea level that are coming up to altitude, it almost seems like they're the, the only training adjustment that you're advising that they're making is just to get into the same habits that they are going to experience during the race. Absolutely. I almost think that yes. this is like a little bit of like a mountain bike problem. You know, you work in mountain bike <laughs> athletes and you look at the course and you're like, okay, well, you can take in fuel here, here, and here, and here, because that's when you can take, take your hands off the bars or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's almost the same thing, right? You're just planning for things, totally. like, not not in in terms of the spacing, but you're planning for the logistics and you're training, for, you're training for the logistics and you're getting an athlete uh, accustomed to the logistics during the training process. Right. And it, and you don't want to make it so complex. You know, the stress of the altitude is its own little complexity. I feel like, you know, like people, that's a piece of the puzzle, right? Like that's enough. And so it's like, make this plan really so simple that the complexity of the altitude is just kind of like the thing that you're going to. Then the other side of that is to your point of when you think of a mountain bike athlete 
is also thinking about the course. Now you can't think about the course in your training unless you have hills and mountains and all of that, or a tra- or if you want to be on a tread glued to a treadmill, you know, mimicking what you're doing. But also thinking of how you're going to fuel. You know, when we talk about this, making sure you're not overeating is also being very respectful of the timing. So if you're heading into a long climb, again, you might be hiking it and so you're like, that's the time to eat, but your heart rate might be elevated because the climb might be really hard. Mm. You also don't want to get to the top of the climb and say, well, now I'm going to eat because I can run on the downhill because also your heart rate might be elevated because you decide to run harder on the downhill. And there's more jostling. Jostling. Again, the blood's going to all your muscles away from your stomach. You know, how many people get into the Twin Lakes aid station after having run downhill? Oh, crew, I'm so happy to see you eat a, you know, have a picnic. Then have to climb, steep climb, heart rate elevates, and puke at the top of the hill. There's probably a puke spot at the at the top of the twin lakes crime climb it's not there yet because there have been no races there but i'm sure it's there at the end of august and i'm and to the point of high lonesome like pick your course you know high lonesome wasatch there's all these long climbs followed by these nice descents and you have to be very respectful that you don't overeat toward the top of the climb and then oh i just want to be well fueled because i'm about to start running well, yes, but again, little bits of fuel so that you're not overloaded when you're descending. Here's my counterpoint to that, though, is like I because I used to prescribe some sort of timing with respect to, OK, you want to you know time your calories here because, you know, you're going to run there and you can't eat your calories here and stuff like that. I kind of just have taken that out of the mix because it's another thing that an athlete has to think about. And I just say, listen, just spread all your calories out as evenly as possible. Just try to just to try to keep it as absolutely as simple as possible because the total amount of calories is going to be what drives everything. And the simplicity ends up driving the total amount of calories. That's the only, like I said, that's, that's the wrinkle that I've added recently to this whole timing planning is, is I kind of like de-emphasize that, especially for athletes that are coming up to altitude for maybe the first time, if they're really used to it, then we can move with the timing. Right. But if they're not, I'm just like, listen, just try to spread it out as much as you can. But I also add to that, if you're climbing, because most of the steepest climbs in any race, maybe the steepest segments, 10 to 20 minutes right? Like you're not steepest climb ever for an hour. So for 20 minutes, if you feel like your heart is up in your mouth, don't put fuel, just drink, right? Right? Like, so I avoid the double negative. Totally. Like if you feel like, if you feel like you're on a really steep segment and that's either up or down, just make sure you're drinking. Like it's okay. Again, Effort, hydration, carbs. Like if we're keeping that order as our map, if your effort is so high, not even like I'm working so hard because I'm overworking. It's like, it's just that steep and, and it's hard. Just drink, like keep it calm, 
go, go the pace you need to go and know that it, when it flattens out, you can throw a chew in your mouth or you can throw a little nibble of food in your mouth. Uh, I'm with um, I'm with you there. You're avoiding the double negative as opposed to yeah. trying to find the most optimal time to eat. Absolutely. Right? I'm, Absolutely. I'm totally on board with you on that one. Yeah. And I think that's just letting also letting the course, you know, let the course lead the way, right? It's like, this is the course you're running. Let it, let it be part it. of your plan. No. And let it be part of your plan, right? Like allow the course to also be part of your plan. It is part of also doing your homework of being aware where the steepest seg- segments are. So you can say, Hey, this is probably a good transition time for me to, again, not have a peanut butter wrap during this segment, you know, not have in my mind that I must eat a peanut butter wrap during this segment. Yeah. You know, this would be a good time for me to just have some gels and some chews available for this segment or be heavier on my liquid nutrition during this segment of the race, you know, knowing like that's okay too. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that strategy, avoiding, the, yeah. avoiding the double negative. Going back to what can you do to prepare? Here's, here's the thing that I'll throw into the mix as a coach is to get as fit as possible because fitness is at a premium at altitude and all too often we tend to neglect fitness at the expense of doing some sort of other intervention. I want to sleep in an altitude 10, or I want to do this, or I want to go to that or whatever. Like your fitness is so exposed at altitude because that physiological floor that I mentioned earlier is so much higher at altitude than it is at sea level that it almost puts, you kind of have to like double down on all of yes. your training going into it because it catalyzes the rest of the nutrition. I agree with that. I also really throw into that um, being well-rested and taking in the fuel you need to recover from the training that's necessary to be prepared. In other words, don't skimp on your recovery. Don't skip on your protein. You know, getting your body, do not come into a high-altitude situation depleted. You know, I have seen people really fight to be in this, oh my gosh, I'm climbing up the mountains. I want to be as light as possible. Mm. Well, here's the little thing about that. If you're as light as you've ever been and you've been really restricting yourself and you have no reserves in your body and your nutrition plan falls a little bit, the challenge becomes you have no reserves in your body. And so you have, again, to our double negative, you have not prepared your body to be really in a positive frame for whatever the race is going to throw at you from a nutrition standpoint. Um, And so, I mean, aside from all the other reasons we need to be healthy, I think coming up into an altitude situation where, you know, even or very hot weather race. I think we saw it play out a little bit at Western States is people who just didn't have a reserve when things kind of unfolded, you know, and I wasn't there, but I was watching and following. They literally had no reserves left, you know, like their bodies were at their limit. Yes, they were the fittest they've ever been going to race day, 
But then when the nutrition plan fell apart a little bit, there was nothing left in reserve for their body. Yeah. We see this a lot where people want to try to lose weight in advance of the race. And they use their heavy training periods as the catalyst for that because the caloric output is a lot higher. And that ends up being a double negative for, for two reasons. Is one, those reserves get eaten up, but also you blunt the adaptive process. So it's like yes. all this work that you've done, you know, training, you're training 20 hours a week or you increase your volume by 20% or whatever, like whatever training catalyst you're using during, during this time. When you're under fueling during that time as well, you're blunting the adaptive process, which is the thing that you're seeking during the intensified training load, which is like the ultimate irony of ironies. I also have this, this is a sneaking suspicion. And I'm going to emphasize that point deliberately that if you're skimping, particularly on your in workout calories during that uh, time frame, you also do yourself a disservice because you kind of detrain the gut. And there's been this theory going around for a while that seems to be more and more plausible the more research comes out about it, that the gut is a trainable organ in terms of the amount of foodstuffs that it can handle. You know, you think Joey Chestnut eating however many hot dogs he has to eat to win Nathan's hot dog eating championship every year. But not only the muscul musculature being adaptable in terms of how much food stuff it can handle, but also the chemistry in inside of it in terms of how it can transport all those nutrients from the stomach and the small intestine into your bloodstream and into your muscles. And I think that going through that process and deliberately withholding calories or unintentionally in a lot of cases, just because the workload is so high there, there's a detraining effect that actually happens because of that, that does the athlete a disservice once the race starts to roll around. 100%. And the, um, sports nutritionists at Martin actually they'll, they, um, I've talked to them and it's not even about that product per se. It's about who they work with. And that is the biggest thing they push is that all of their athletes are training with their fuel. So part of their training is just as essential that they are taking their bottles with their fuel. And so they are not skimping. They are constantly training their guts. Again, it's not a, this is the, the product, the magical product. It's they're saying, well, they believe it's the magical product, but they're also saying, we are sending our elite athletes, Kipchoge, who they use as an example, he trains with his fuel every time yeah. he does a run. I um, mean, if we can't follow that example, like, yeah. what are we doing? Well, I you think know, it, cyclists are really good about that, I will say. Um, cyclists are better about taking their bottles with their fuel and doing a better job with that. Um, runners, historically, are not. You know, and like I said, it is okay to say to yourself, like, I'm going to take a little bit less than maybe my race requirement. I think there should always be race simulation yeah. training where you are actually utilizing the number that you're, you think you should be using, but it's okay to use a little less as long as you get on the routine of this is how frequently I need to be taking a bite in or this in so that your body is used to taking this in at this interval, if we, you know, it's just like, I'm sure it's a muscle memory thing. If you're used to grabbing in your pack for a nibble, then you're used to grabbing for it. You don't need a watch timer to do that. 
Yeah, I mean, I still just come back to there's an I I just feel there's an adaptive process in addition to the habit form formation that you were that you were just talking about that when you know whether it's you know I, I use a ten percent okay you you're doing two hundred fifty calories an hour you want to go up to two hundred seventy five great you want to go down to two hundred twenty five great that's kind of immaterial right. in the whole in, totally. in the whole scheme of things just like it would be with any other training variable you go up yeah. or down ten percent and it kind of comes out in the wash I, I just it's it's one of those things where I try to have athletes is now is apparently a common theme during this podcast, avoid the double <laughs> negative where you're having these big intensified training loads and you're intentionally trying to lose weight at the same time by, by specifically cutting out the exercise calories, you end up doing more harm than good. And all this, you t- end up taking just a big risk with that intensified training load for no reward because you've blunted and the adaptive process and screwed up all the habits. One, two you create a really dangerous daily nutrition. So we are in, as we should be, we should we should separate our training, racing nutrition from our daily nutrition. They're two separate things, 100%. If you are not taking in, so if you go out for a two hour, two and a half hour run and you are not fueling, you will finish starving. And then if you skimp afterward, or you run the risk of overeating afterward because you were starving. Right. And so it's like the best thing you can do is separate out the two, take care of your run. I always like to say, take care of your run. That means eat on a long run, eat before your run, eat during your run, take your recovery after your run. Then it's so easy to just flow into normal eating yep. the rest of the day. But if you've done none of that, you can have the best intentions in the world, but if you are physiologically starving, there is no way you're going to just go back to normal, healthy eating after you work out. Yeah. And so if somebody's trying to lose a couple of pounds, it should never happen when you're taking care of your workout. And this has nothing, it, it has everything to do with altitude. It actually just has everything to do with training. <laughs> um, you know, but it's, you should never be trying to lose weight during your workout ever. The whole package of your workout is never the time when you should be trying to lose weight. I mean, 100% period. You should be taking care of those workouts because by taking care of those workouts, the full package of taking care of that workout, your body is getting everything it needs to perform which again, if we are on limited time, what do we want? We want it like when we get to go run, we want to feel good and we want it to be enjoyable. That's fuel. Then we want to be able to recover after. That's the package. So that should never occur during training. Here, here, in my opinion. Let uh, me so, just, in my opinion. No, but. that's fine. That's, you're the guest. You can offer up as but many opinions to, as you want. But to that, that then floats to when we go to altitude, when we have less of an appetite, if you're used to taking care of those workouts, if you're only there for four days, your body is used to getting in what it needs. And so it can translate so beautifully to when you go to a race or in, even if your race isn't at altitude, but a, sh- a high stress situation. Yeah. You can just translate that every time, which, you know, races are stressful, altitude or not. (laughs) But I think what we're kind of getting down to is the things that you can do in training is get to the fit line as start as possible and Mm -hmm. try to to, try to develop 
the same habits that you're going to have during the race, during the training process. Outside of those two heavy hitters, everything else kind of takes care of itself. And then you usually end up doing more harm than good with any of the other manipulations that you're trying to do, whether it's a weight loss manipulation or, you know, what kind of whatever it is. I really do think that if you get the habits correct and Mm -hmm. then train, you're 99% of the way there. Yeah. And I I do want to say one thing to the altitude tent, just because you made a mention to that, you know, where we talked about that necessary for more hydration. If you're spending time in an altitude tent, you need to treat your body like you're at altitude. Yeah. I think one mistake people make, and I don't know this because I actually don't work with a lot of people who utilize an altitude tent, but I, I imagine one mistake people make is they're probably perpetually dehydrated. Yeah when they're sleeping in an altitude tent. And again, that hampers recovery, that hampers training. It's kind of, you know, it ends up just being a vicious cycle. And I think that that's something important to consider. If you're somebody who's in an altitude tent right now, make sure that your hydration is following as though you are at altitude. Interestingly enough, this is just more banter. We'll get back. We'll (laughs) we'll wrap up the practical points just after this. But in my observation, Altitude using an altitude tent as an intervention has, is just getting less and less popular. Like we just don't see it as much anymore. And I think it has entirely to do with all of the fantastic education that we have around that training intervention that can say, this is how much you could potentially benefit. This is how much you could potentially harm. Here are the things to look for. And more people, because of that whole education ecosystem because of everything that's kind of like come out in the last 15 years or so more and more people are ruling it out as an intervention because they look at the entire landscape and go man if it's only worth this much then i might as well just train or you know if it's problematic i can't sleep in it or kind of whatever it is it's certainly not the like magic bullet that everybody thought it was 10 or 15 years ago where i mean you would you would be hard pressed to find an elite athlete that did not have an altitude tent or have ac- at least have access to one during critical training, uh, uh, during critical training phases. And now it's just, it's, it's just more of a rarity. Yeah. And again, no opinion on an altitude tent. Um, if you're in Texas and you're utilizing one, make sure you have good air conditioning. Um, that's all, that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. It's like a freezing. Anyway. Worst, worst well, sleep I ever had be- oh, was God. because we had a terrible air conditioner at the time. Yeah, and I think it was like 85 degrees in there. It's tough. So just make sure that you have like everything you need to support again, hydration, make a cool room, like all the things you need to support the other parts of your training that are actually very important is the good rest, the good recovery, the good hydration. So, and I just want to say that because there are people I'm sure utilizing those. And so you just want to make sure that you're, you're getting the most out of it. Yeah. It can be effective, but you got to have the right physiological setup going into it and you have to arrange the training correctly and you have to pay attention to all these other things. Otherwise it's like one up, one down pretty, pretty easily. I can see that. Okay. So I promised everybody we'll come back to the practical pieces (laughs) of this. Let's let's wrap it up. Right. So we're in altitude season. 
and uh, we determined we we came up with our three point plan. This is going to go really well on some sort of uh, uh, some sort of infographic that I'm going to come up with to accompany the podcast. <laughs> and the first part of the plan is control your effort at altitude. That becomes even more important. Second part is to make sure that you have your hydration, and sometimes that's dramatic. We're going to use thirty ish percent, twenty thirty percent. You okay with that, Mayor? Yes. Okay. Yes. 20, 30% increase in your hydration, not just water, hydration total uh, with electrolytes. And uh, the third piece of that is to take everything that you're considering taking in in smaller chunks. Absolutely. Any caveats yes. to that, Meredith? Um, I would say just being mindful of the type of food. Um, as always, know what's in, know what's in what you're taking. And then pay attention to your course of when the food you're taking in makes the most sense. The great thing about all of that is if people don't deviate from it, that's really not going to screw them up. Yeah. Like I was afraid of that when, with the timing of this podcast, as we mentioned during the caveats, but really those three things, maybe the effort piece if they're chasing cutoffs and they just get too far behind, but really that's not going to, I don't think that that's a dramatic enough change for anybody to really epically screw it up. No, and we didn't lay out some very specific plan that somebody will rewrite their plan for tomorrow or next week or whenever it is. Well, unless they're planning on having a whole pizza at URA or something like that, then you're just taking your whole pizza and you're hiking up Engineer Pass with it. I mean, cut it again, <laughs> cut it in small pieces, put it in a baggie. I am all for it. Uh, perfect. All right. We're going <laughs> to leave it at that, Mary. That was great. Awesome. Uh, Really quickly, where I'm going to have leave links to the show notes, obviously, with all this stuff, but where can people find out more about you? Um, eatingandlivinghealthy.com or sunshinemayor23 on Instagram. What's up with your Instagram handle, by the way? Where did that come from? Sunshinemayor. Um, I love the sunshine. And so, um, and 23 is the date of our anniversary. Oh, so that's, that's yes. Um, yeah, I love I think I, I used to have a blog that said sunshine makes me happy. Oh, there you go. So, Great backstory. I never knew that. That's, yeah, that's kind of, that's all me. Yes. All the vitamin D. All right, ma'am. Well, I'll see you in Silverton. And uh, yes. thanks for coming on the podcast again. Thanks for having me on. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Meredith for coming back on the podcast as a repeat offender. I hope everybody listening really took to heart some of the very simple steps that Meredith and I laid out throughout the course of this podcast on how to adapt your nutrition program into these high altitude situations. And I think that they were simple enough to where you can use them right away without any sort of pre-planning. Not that you shouldn't because you, you should always try your nutrition program out and training before you get to the race. And if you took away anything, make sure that you are doing that. If anything, just to set the habits that you are going to use on race day. Thank you folks for listening to the podcast today. You hardcore listeners will remember last week I gave everybody a promo code to get a free book from my website with no strings attached to commemorate 1 million downloads of this podcast. 
those books came and went. I completely ran out of them. I ran out of everything, all the packaging and everything that I had in my house where I ship all these books from. Thank you guys. I'm incredibly grateful and humbled at the, at the response to those. If you didn't get a book, you can still buy one on Amazon. It's like 20 bucks right now, $22. It's really not that expensive. If I gave you a free book and you like it a lot, or if you somehow want to absorb the information in a little bit of a different format, you can go and get a hold of the audiobook. It's one credit on Audible. It doesn't cost you hardly anything if you have an Audible subscription. And it's a really awesome format to listen to on your runs. And it accompanies the book in quite a fantastic way. But irrespective of whether you got a book for free or you purchased it beforehand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all the listeners out there. Once again, I never thought that I'd reach a million downloads in 10 or 20 years of doing this podcast. Moreover, just a few short years of doing it. So thank you to all the listeners out there. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.